Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. Twitter is an interesting place. I'm sure that so many of us have followed how the platform was used as a political tool by previous presidential administrations, and we've had conversations about content moderation and ethics in previous episodes that have really touched on just a few of the issues this platform and those participating on it can encounter. But it has also been a lifeline for marginalized communities. Black people have turned to Twitter for a variety of reasons and have built a very robust community on the platform called Black Twitter. It has been a site of mutual support and organizing resistance. Today, we'll dive deeper, asking the question, what is Black Twitter? To answer this, we turn to Shamika Klassen, a researcher here at CU Boulder whose recent research has gotten a lot of attention for helping shine light on what Black Twitter is and has become. Shamika Klassen is a person who describes herself as passionate about people and technology. Shamika is a PhD candidate in information science at the University of Colorado Boulder. Originally from San Antonio, Texas, Shamika attended Stanford University, served a year with the AmeriCorps through Reading Partners in Queens, and decided to stay in New York City. She went on to study technology and ethics at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York and is thrilled to be serving others as a tech chaplain. At CU Boulder, she has continued her study of technology, ethics, and social justice issues. Recently, you may have seen Shamika featured in the Denver Post, CU Boulder Today, The Root, and the Boulder Weekly. Today, we get to have a conversation with Shamika about her outstanding work and research. Welcome to the show, Shamika. We are so thrilled to have this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So we'll just go ahead and jump right in. Um, I would love to know how you knew that you wanted to start researching technology and social media platforms and kind of what was your journey to get here? Began when I was in seminary. I went to a social justice oriented seminary and it was around the time of the Black Lives Matter movement really growing in New York City, as well as Gamergate happening. And there were a lot of people in the seminary who were very passionate about social justice issues, but some of the issues that were happening in the digital space, they didn't even, they either didn't know about them or they were just finding out about them uh, and starting to get involved in them. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting intersection of technology and social justice. And I thought uh, that ethics was a great sort of medium to have that conversation between the two. So fast forward to when I'm in my doctoral program, um, there was a prospective student who I met. We were both at the sort of welcome weekend to check out CU Boulder. And uh, her name was Sarah Kingsley. She ended up going to Carnegie Mellon 
but we stayed in touch as I went to CU Boulder. So in November of my first semester, she reached out to me and said, I have this really great idea for a research project. It's looking at Jim Crow as a racist algorithm. And I thought, oh, that sounds very interesting. So we hopped on a call and we started talking about it, but we were having trouble figuring out the research questions per se and then the, the research design. And so I brought in my friend Kaylin McCall, who's is pursuing her history PhD at Harvard. And as she came into the conversation and we were talking, I had also just finished the book uh, Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks. And so we were talking about bridging stories from the past to the present, because that's what Virginia does in that book, where she looks at the poor houses of the 18th and 19th century and compares them to the digital poorhouses of today that are created by algorithms. So we wanted to bridge across time from the Jim Crow era to today. And when we thought of the Jim Crow era and something that we wanted to focus on, the idea came up of the Negro Motorist Green Book. And then as we were thinking, okay, what can we connect that to today? Kaylin was like, well, I'm thinking of Black Twitter. I feel like that's a space where similar navigation of racism and different things happen. And as soon as we made that connection, the research questions flowed, the design came together, and we were able to move forward with the research project. No, that's absolutely wonderful. I love that you brought up that book um, by Eubanks, because I I also read that book, and it is just, it's fantastic. And so Mm -hmm. I love that that actually served as like a springboard almost for some of your ideas. And that kind of brings me actually to my second question, which is about, you know, your recent work kind of like you were just mentioning covering Black Twitter um, Mm -hmm. as a space. Could you maybe explain more about Black Twitter? Like, what is it? How did Mm -hmm. you also arrive? um, And then what, what is it that you study about that space? Absolutely. So Black Twitter has been described as sort of like a cookout online. It's it's not a specific app. It's not a specific space or place, uh, but it's really just an amalgamation of people and uh, different hashtags on Twitter that comprise as Black Twitter. So um, the interviews and research that we've done have shown that people often find themselves following uh, accounts or following hashtags, and they find their way to Black Twitter that way. Um, But really, it's a space and a place where Black people are able to be themselves online and discuss a myriad of topics, uh, from sports and entertainment to politics and health and all kinds of things in between. So it's, it's a thriving community online in which people have appropriated this space that was not necessarily created by or for them, uh, but have found a way to make it work for them now and to to do everything from activist work and social justice uh, oriented uh, work and movements all the way to finding joy and humor in difficult times. I love that. Yeah, it seems like that can be, it's kind of a theme that's been coming up um, throughout the different conversations we've had even on this show is just about how online spaces have been a place where people are able to develop and build that community, especially mm-hmm. like in light of this past year. And so mm-hmm. I think that's really beautiful that that you brought that up as well with this. And it's kind of making me think too about, I know you just had a, a study that was published, a 2021 study uh, called More Than a Modern Day Green Book, Exploring the Online Community of Black Twitter. 
And it involved quite a bit of data collection. But I was really intrigued because I noticed it's different methods of, of collection, like different things were going on and to make the study happen. And so I was wondering, could you explain more about what your team studied and mm-hmm. what questions you asked and maybe like how did you go about collecting this data? Yeah, absolutely. So when we first envisioned the research design, we wanted to interview people specifically. A lot of the research that we saw that had been conducted on Black Twitter was outside of the human uh, computer interaction or HCI space. Uh, And a lot of those studies looked at specific hashtags, such as if they gunned me down or um, the how to get away with murder hashtag, which was a really cool study looking at how people co-view shows like How to Get Away with Murder together online in spaces like Black Twitter. So for our research design, we wanted to make sure we interviewed people, but we also wanted to look at tweets. So we gathered over 75,000 tweets using Max QDA, and we wanted to focus specifically on uh, hashtags that we thought would capture the, the broadest amount of conversation on Black Twitter. So we used the hashtag Black Twitter for our query. We also used Black Lives Matter or BLM. And we also were interested in in tweets that mentioned while Black. So driving while Black or walking while Black, living while Black, any anything that had that phrase in it to capture those moments and those conversations. Um, so in combination with the tweets and the interviews, we actually also looked at the Green Book editions on the New York Public Library. They have the the archive of the Green Book on there. And we were able to talk more about the Green Book and the tweets in a second paper that we published in group. Um, and so that paper was really an opportunity to discuss what we learned from looking at the tweets in connection to and in conversation with the Green Book editions that we saw in the New York Public Library. So the group paper is Black Lives, Green Books, and Blue Checks, comparing the content of the Negro Motors Green Book to the content on Black Twitter. And so that paper will be coming out shortly. Oh, I love that so much. (laughs) I've been really inspired by the way that, you know, you can take data and really do a lot with with it, you know, and ask different questions and and really figure out a lot of connections. And so I think that's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I know, too, I wanted to circle back because I know that you mentioned the Green Book. And I was wondering, Mm -hmm. could you explain more, like, what is the Green Book? Um, Mm -hmm. And then how, like, what kind of connections, I guess, were you making between the Green Book and the Black Twitter community? Yes, uh, that's a great question. So the Negro Motorist Green Book was a travel companion that was published from 1936 to 1966 by Victor Green uh, and his wife. And so the Green Book, as it's known colloquially, really had uh, information for Black travelers to travel safely during the era of Jim Crow. There were places to eat, places to sleep, such as hotels and and resorts. There were places to get your car fixed, places to get your clothes cleaned or your hair done and all kinds of things. And it grew from looking just at the New York area and a couple of states to looking internationally at the 50 states as well as several countries by the end of its uh, run. And so when we look at the Green Book in comparison to Black Twitter, some of the commonalities that we saw were that on both spaces, there was information sharing. There were ways that the Black community was able to get information from the Green Book that specifically would help them 
uh, survive and even thrive on the road while they were traveling and interact, engaging with sundown towns, for example, where you had to be out of the city or out of the town before the sun went down or else bad things would definitely happen. Um, so the information sharing on Black Twitter would look like people uh, asking uh, or putting in a tweet, hey, I'm looking for a Black therapist. Does anyone have any recommendations? Or I'm traveling to Atlanta this weekend. Does anyone know good places to eat? And there's all kinds of Black businesses that will share information with people on Black Twitter so that you can support those businesses as well. So information sharing was one of the first things we noticed. The other thing that we noticed was the way that both of these um both of these things interact with and engage with social justice uh, and activism. So it was more subtle and implicit in the Green Book. Uh, that that was sort of like a, a space in which they decided to make uh, a more implicit approach to addressing racism because it was a book that anyone could pick up. So they wanted to sort of toe the line, if you will. They would call... Uh, things, inconveniences, right? So they, they would say white travelers don't have the same inconveniences that black travelers do. And they they had articles that published a list of black colleges and universities for black GIs, for example, who were struggling to get back into school um, after returning home from the war and trying to use the GI Bill uh, to go to college, but they were finding resistance from predominantly white institutions. So there was also a list of your rights after the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. So people knew what their rights were and who to contact if they felt like their rights were being violated or not upheld. Um, and then if you fast forward to Black Twitter, social justice uh, looks like the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me, the Me Too movement, the Say Her Name movement. Um, it also looks like people encouraging others to vote, uh, to encouraging people to sign petitions and all kinds of uh, both big and small things that happen on Black Twitter. And it's much more explicit than what we saw in the Green Book. Mm. And I... I'm fascinated by these connections because I think, I mean, these are absolutely like, I mean, it, it's wild to think like, oh, you can put these two things together from like maybe different times or, or whatnot. And you realize like in a lot of ways, it's, it's a lot of the same things that are happening, but now it's in this like digital space and it's it's a safe space for for people to find information. Like you were saying, civic mm-hmm. engagement matters, like all of these things. And I think that's really fascinating. Um, When you were looking at kind of you know, finding these connections between the Green Book and Black Twitter, like how how did you all? I know you mentioned. I think it was was it a, a colleague that had had come up with the idea of the Green Book and like looking at that. Um, how did you kind of find that artifact um, or you know thing to explore? Um, well, we we first looked at the archive on the New York Public Library. They have a digital archive of. I think nearly all of the green book editions. And so they have them scanned in there and we were able to look at all the covers, all the directories. So the spaces and locations that were listed in each edition, as well as the articles that were published in the green book editions. There were articles written by um, two either insurancemen or salesmen, I forget their vocation, but they were two black travelers who would travel a lot for work. 
and they were older gentlemen and they talked about traveling in the late 1800s and how much they wished they had a resource like the green book when they were traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were, there were also articles about the new cars that were coming out in the coming year, or there was an article that was sort of tongue in cheek about um, how, how to not uh, live a long life. So basically things that you could do that, um, that you really want to avoid, but they were positioning it in a way that was kind of humorous. And so there were a number of different resources within the green books that we were able to find on the New York Public Library. Okay, that that makes so much sense. Um, And I, I think that's really wonderful that you all were able to not only find these, but also then make these fantastic connections to to Black Twitter today. Um, Mm -hmm. So thank you for kind of walking us through that. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Shamika Klassen about Black Twitter. And there was something else that kind of came out. So I read through the See You Boulder Today piece, and I was really struck by some of the other, you know, themes that were kind of emerging in, in your work. And those included some findings about what I think was called culture vultures or mm-hmm. voyeurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering, like, could you explain kind of what this means? And then also, like, what's actually happening in Twitter or like other social media platforms uh, with, with these themes in mind? Yes, definitely. So culture vultures or voyeurs are, um, they can be blog sites, they can be news sites, they could be other people on the platform, but essentially they're folks who are taking a a piece of content and it, they're engaging with it from this perspective of looking at that person's culture as an object to be repurposed, consumed, appropriated, or this kind of thing. So for example, BuzzFeed has articles where they'll pull tweets from Black Twitter and other places. Uh, and some I, I don't know if they're asking for permission, right? Sometimes the tweets have the username, sometimes they don't. And so Um, that's an issue. And then it's not something that happens just on Twitter. Like you said, it's in spaces like TikTok. Um, And it was a term that the interviewees would say again and again, like it came up in several different interviews and it was completely unprompted. Uh, So it was something that we saw as pretty prevalent in our findings as well. Yeah, this is actually, it's making me think about specifically with TikTok. Um, I know that there's been a lot of, of, you know, news articles that have come out about, you know, the people who've gotten famous on the platform, which mm-hmm. largely white, you know, creators, mm-hmm. and they're actually taking, you know, the dances and stuff like directly from black artists on the platform yes. and, and becoming more popular. And it, it really struck me when I was reading this piece, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is one example of, of definitely what you're talking about. Are there other things that you can think about that would be, you know, anecdotal, like, uh, things to add to that as well, potentially, to kind of demonstrate what we're talking about. 
Uh, yeah, there are all kinds of things that will start on Black Twitter or, or like there was a Vine, I think, that was uh, a young woman and she had used the term on fleek and that's where it came from. And then it exploded everywhere. But I don't think many people know uh, the the origin of that term and where it came from and, and whatnot. And so there's also the renegade dance, for example, that got picked up by other people. And it, the original young black woman who created it didn't get her due for a really long time. And even then all of the, the attention and the, the sponsorships and whatnot that came to some of these other not, you know, creators didn't necessarily go to her. So it's, it's a story that actually starts before uh, the digital age when the, the intellectual property, the contributions to culture from the Black community were often appropriated. You, you see this in music a lot, um, but, it, but it happens elsewhere with fashion and um, in other areas in which Black people will create things and then it will be appropriated by other entities and other communities. Um, and it's really unfortunate that it has traversed into the digital space and continues to happen today. Yeah. And it's, it's making me think about too, just like, you know, the platforms themselves and the way that they're designed even, and like Mm -hmm. what's getting the most views and like who are getting the most views and then the promotion of certain types of content over other types of content and how it really is all kind of just scaffolding on this this inequality and these horrible things that have been happening systemically for so long. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, having this conversation especially is like, it's super important to remember, like these things are going on every single day, you know, mm-hmm. all of the time. And we really, really need to pay attention to them. So I really appreciated that aspect of your work as well, because it really forced me to stop and think like, oh my gosh, like what is happening on these platforms? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that kind of brings me into a discussion, you know, that, that's been ongoing, I think, uh, and, and hopefully will continue to be ongoing about ethics on social media platforms, mm-hmm. um, like the datafication process of the everyday life and the person um, and how we can even, like you said earlier, we can kind of turn to the internet for this community space or even for like healing opportunities potentially as we're navigating daily life. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering too, um, what does it mean to you when social media platforms like Twitter are kind of being used as tools for the pursuit of social justice? Mm. I feel like it's it's a understandable sort of expression and manifestation and movement forward from the civil rights movement of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, it's, it's a progression that I think makes a lot of sense because as life has moved increasingly more onto uh, the digital space and online, then those aspects of our life in which we're demanding better of, of our society and the people in power uh, will also move to the digital space as well. And so I feel like there was, there was an article written several years ago about the revolution will not be tweeted, I believe. It was in the New Yorker, um, and it was talking about weak ties and strong ties and how the civil rights movement of the 1960s had strong ties through the church and through 
their organization methods. And today there were weak ties, which I don't agree with. I feel like there's been a lot of good things and a lot of really amazing efforts that have happened in the movements that have been birthed online and in the digital space. And so I feel like it was Malcolm Gladwell who wrote that article. And I feel like I would really challenge him to see if he'd say the same thing today. Uh, Cause I think the article was written in like 2005 or something like that. But um, yeah, it's, it's always stuck with me as a really, is that right? Kind of perspective. So yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's a really important space to be, utilizing the tools that we have at our fingertips to not only collaborate and collect it in collectives online, but also get people offline, get people doing things in the streets, doing things uh, politically, such as going out to vote, etc. Um, it does transgress, uh, transverse the digital space back to the offline space. Mm. And, you know, that's making me think about, you know, too, just I love that you brought up the online and, you know, offline type of differentiation um, mm -hmm. and how those two can work together even. Um, and it's made me wonder, like, when you were doing your interviews or, like, throughout your work over the years, have you had, like, a specific moment where you were, like, this is exactly like the pinnacle of what this tool could be. Like, did it have this moment of like it, you know, maybe it started online and it went, you know, offline or maybe it was offline and it went online and they, they bounced back and forth. But can you think of any examples where you've just seen like, this is what this could be, or this is what it should be, or, you know, this is its potential. Mm. Yeah. I feel like I, I've seen it both in a positive and a negative way. Right. So the negative way first, I, I remember watching Gamergate unfold. And that's a, a negative potential for these spaces where there were a number of women such as Anita Sarkeesian and Brianna Wu uh, and, and others who were getting this vitriol uh, constantly barraged with death and rape threats and weaponized pornography. Um, just for being women in specific spaces in which there was a male dominance and the, there was a hostility towards women. Uh, there's a term that I coined in my thesis work as a graduate student at Union Theological Seminary, which is the uncanny valley of humanity. And it's this notion that's based on the uncanny valley in computer, in CGI and computer graphic uh, imagery, imagery, where if you have a, an entity such as a robot or a doll, the more human-like it looks and the more realistic it moves, um, then it becomes more pleasing to the eye. But then there's a valley where it dips, where it's like, oh, this is too human, but not just quite a little bit not enough. Um, and so this valley, this uncanny valley, uh, causes a disturbance. It causes discomfort. And I think that there's an uncanny valley of humanity in which people who are not heteronormative, if they're not uh, a straight, white, heterosexual male who's educated in the United States, right? So you can go down this list of things. If you are not that, and you are in a space in which you are bumping up against stereotypes or ways that people expect you to behave, then you end up falling into this uncanny valley of humanity in which you're disturbing people, you're causing discomfort to people. And I feel like that's a, a that Gamergate is an example of that happening where you have 
women who love video games. I, I'm a gamer. I love video games. And I, I don't play as much as I used to because I'm in graduate school, but I'm looking forward to Fable 3. So I think that as a woman who games, that's something that if you go into an online space where you're playing with people live, then the kinds of comments that you'll get or the way that people will treat you is going to be so different than if you were a male identified person in those spaces. Uh, or if you're a technologist or if you're a computer scientist, I remember the other day seeing a tweet about uh, Timnit Jabru and how she's opening the DIIR uh, Institute and go her for, by the way, that's amazing. Uh, but someone was saying, well, Timnit isn't really uh, an, an AI uh, person. She's more of an ethicist. And she, she came back and was like, okay, so I have a degree in engineering and computer science from, uh, from an institu uh, prestigious institution, but go on, right? So it's like <laughs> these kinds of, that's this attempt to kind of make sense, uh, make sense, quote unquote, of how Timnit Jabru got to where she is and the way in which she's able to navigate the spaces that she exists in is to say, oh, well, she's not a computer scientist. She's just an ethicist. And it just is so belittling, right? And it's something that happens to a number of people in a, in a myriad of scenarios. But I think that the notion of the uncanny valley of humanity is, is a handy way of thinking about it. And hopefully, once it's recognized, it's something that people can start to fill in that valley, if you will. So more and more people don't have to find themselves there. Mm. No, I, I love that, especially the notion of the uncanny valley. Like that is, it's really powerful. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's so good. Um, yeah, I, I love that. And I know this is something that is happening. Like you said, it, it is happening all the time. I've seen it from, you know, academic Twitter, all mm -hmm. the way over to like sports and like, I mean, all kinds mm -hmm. of different, you know, aspects of, of life and what people's interests are and that constant mm -hmm. belittling that that's taking place as people are, you know, on these platforms. And like you said, maybe trying to make sense of or like negotiate, you know, when these are like, oh, wow, like this person, I would, you know, you think about the the stereotypes even that have been reinforced of like, who's an engineer? Mm -hmm. And it's probably like, first thing that comes to mind might be a white man, you know, it's just like, mm -hmm. it's ridiculous, but like how those things are so baked into every aspect of life and how that manifests in online spaces for sure. And I know you mentioned too, that you had like, a positive moment that you you can think about, you know, would you mind sharing like what was that positive thing where you saw it, you were like, this is what online offline, you know, mm -hmm. working together, like what it should look like. Yes, yes, I'd be happy to share. So when I was in seminary, we Union Theological Seminary is across the street from Columbia University in New York City. And so I remember being a part of a community, they were talking online about wanting to do a protest specifically for the black students at Columbia who were having conversations and or trying to have conversations and talks with Columbia about the issues they were having on campus. They were not being heard. They didn't feel heard. Uh, and so we organized this protest offline. And I distinctly remember I was missing class to go there. I still have the, the poster up. It's the Black Minds Matter, hashtag studying while Black. Um, and so this was back in 2014, 2015. 
and we marched around the campus. We and this was around the time that uh, Eric Garner was killed by police in New York City. So we were chanting. Um, we would say, "I can't breathe," and then someone would count, and they would count up to eleven, and then we would start over. And there were there were so many other chants. That's one that just stuck with me, and it still sticks with me to this day. Um, and I remember when I went, I, I did catch the last few minutes of class. So I went into the class and the professor, I, I, it was a sociology class about uh, digital media. So I came into the class and I sat in the back with my little poster and the professor just put up his fist and I was like, yeah, he gets it. I'm not going to fail this class. <laughs> Good stuff. I love that so much. Um, Yeah. And I feel like I've been noticing, you know, more and more. um, I mean, there's all kinds of books now, too, about even internationally how, you know, online spaces are becoming ways to organize and like get people talking about thinking about working on specific social justice issues. And I've I've thought that was really it's really beautiful, Um, first of all, because I also realized like the reach on these platforms is is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's that ability now to to see international things. You can see national things, local things, like basically all all levels of of uh, scope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've I've been really inspired by that as well. And I'm hoping that that will kind of continue in the future. And we keep using these tools in these ways because I think that's one thing that's like really, really powerful about, about our resources today for a lot of mm-hmm. people. Yeah, it, it is very powerful. I think that's why uh, people are starting to get more savvy uh, who are in these sort of movements to think about the ways in which law enforcement are infiltrating spaces, similar to what they did in the civil rights um, movement back in the 60s, where they were wiretapping people and putting in, you know, trying to plant people in meetings and this kind of thing to get information. Uh, there, I've, I've seen people say when you're at a protest, don't take pictures of people's faces because they're using facial recognition software when you upload that to social media. Or there are, um, I remember seeing last summer, there were cops who would play copyrighted music really loudly so that if you were live streaming or if you were trying to post a video up, it would get uh, copyright stricken. And, and this kind of thing. So like, as people are implementing these new tools, so is the other side, so to speak, right? So there's an effort and a willingness to try and stay ahead of that uh, and ways to navigate those extra hurdles that people are having to overcome as well as the actual social justice they're seeking. Mm, yeah, no, I think, yeah, that, that's that's definitely something too. It's like, Wow. You know, and you're constantly having to figure out like, I mean, also safety concerns are like another Mm -hmm. big thing. It's like, I think there's sometimes this, maybe this implied sense of safety for a lot of users. Like, oh, if I go online and I say these things, you know, I'm guaranteed like, you know, it's like freedom of speech and it's not violating any of the the rules of the platform or whatever. So like, oh, I can say, you know, I'm safe or whatnot. But Mm -hmm. now there's also that aspect too of of actual safety for for participants and protests for mm-hmm. you know their jobs like i mean all kinds of of different implications too and i really love that you brought that up cuz i think that's really important and you're right it is something that we're going to have to keep navigating as we move forward mm-hmm. um this is kind of also making me think about just 
the the rapid changes that are occurring all the time too with like you know every platform like does like some sort of update or like there's going to be new rules that are coming out or like mm-hmm. you know over time things just they do change and um i was kind of wondering like what are you predicting maybe in the next maybe decade five years what it might be and and how people are using you know social media platforms and then we could get into potentially like, you know, maybe policy or like other things at another question. But, you know, what are what are some things that you think might happen in the next few years? Sure. So I am starting to see currently more and more products and apps and spaces that are specifically geared toward identity it's not necessarily a new thing because there have been like websites that existed for like black planet or, you know, these kinds of spaces that existed for the black community. But I think that there's more sophisticated, more intentional spaces for marginalized groups. Um, I just got an invitation to somewhere good and I don't have an iPhone, so I can't use it, but it looks amazing. Right. And so I think that that's something that's going to continue to grow. And I feel like more people are going to start investing in these smaller communities uh, as the big platforms continue to struggle with these huge issues that they're facing. But then again, on the other hand, we go from small communities to these larger platforms. I feel like on these larger platforms in the future, as you know, Facebook's metaverse goes up, gets up and running like there's going to be more investment in technologies like AR and VR. Um, And so I feel like that's going to affect the ways that we communicate with each other in the digital space. Um, And VR, VR has been around for a very long time. And so it's, it's every once in a while it'll get its heyday and then it'll kind of fade back. But I feel like maybe this time, and I feel like people have probably been saying that this whole time. Maybe this time will be the time. But it, it definitely seems extremely promising at this moment uh, with the backing of a company like Meta. So I would hope that, I mean, with with Meta, it's, I, I say Meta parentheses Facebook because I don't want to get swept up in their marketing plan to have people forget that they're Facebook. But um, I would hope that somehow they have their come to Jesus moment and are able to turn the ship in a, in a better way for the people who are using their platform and the people who are affected by their platform. So if some, some miracle happens and they're able to do that, or maybe they're able to use the metaverse as a clean slate. um, I I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful, um, but also realistic. So I, I would hope that in rolling out that metaverse, they're able to maybe fix some of the issues they've had with the current platforms. Uh, But then again, they may just create new ones. So you're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon.
Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Shamika Klassen about Black Twitter. Yes. Yeah, that's always the risk. It's just like, man, because it's like we solve one thing or like maybe not solve. Maybe that's too strong. But like something will get adjusted perhaps. And then it's Mm like, yay, we did it. And then all of a sudden you're like, no, there's some new like burst in the pipe has just broken. And you're like, I got to fix this now. And I'm like, oh, so Mm -hmm. I don't know. But yeah, I think that that's true. And while you were talking as well, it started making me think about, you know, Facebook specifically. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about Twitter um, as a platform. And so with Facebook, um, you know, how, and I know that you mentioned too, like Black Twitter kind of transcends platforms even. Like mm-hmm. on Facebook, you know, what is the community like um, on that platform? Or like, is it the same? Is it hashtag kind of based? Is it still operating or functioning in similar ways as Twitter? Or maybe like, what are the differences between the two? Yeah, well, one of the main differences with uh, between Black, between Twitter and Facebook is that with Facebook, you do have granular privacy settings for who gets to see your content. So it's very similar to the Google Plus circles that used to exist. Uh, Rest in peace, Google Plus. Uh, but where you could put people in specific circles and those would be the specific people who would see specific content. Uh, And on Facebook, you can determine post by post who gets to see what. Um, Twitter is more of a platform where you post something and unless your account is private and only your followers get to see what you post, then everybody and anybody gets to see what you post. And And so that's a huge difference there. Also, Twitter is more um, more used and and uses hashtags more. Uh, I know that Facebook it did allow people to put hashtags in their posts, and you could search by hashtags on Facebook. But I don't think that's the main uh, lingua franca, if you will, of Facebook. I think instead, Facebook is really about its groups. So you can join a group for just about anything and for for all kinds of reasons, both good and not good. So there's uh, that's, I think, both the strength and the weakness of Facebook is that you can find a group as, you know, moms who live in the Bay Area, or you can find a group of parents who don't want to vaccinate their children or, you know, any any number of things on both sides of the coin. So it's, um, I think it's a little bit more sinister in that way. But then again, Twitter has issues with online harassment and hate speech. Um, I know there was an article that we mentioned in our paper about how if you use African-American vernacular English, then you're more likely to get caught up in the hate speech algorithm as hate speech than other people on the platform. So, Mm. I mean, both spaces have their cons and somewhat pros, but um, I think that they're they're distinct enough uh, while they do borrow from each other just a little bit, uh, they're still distinct enough. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that's, I mean, it's so true. It's like, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll get lost in how many different social media platforms exist today. I'm like, oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. I feel like the number just keeps growing. Like every few years, there's a new big one to add, right? And, mm-hmm. but I'm also thinking too about like what each one affords or the limits as well. And so 
That's mm-hmm. constantly something I'm kind of like working through or asking students to think about and like, how do we use these? Like, how do we know what the norms are? Like all of those things that go along with, with use. And so I really love that you've highlighted, you know, both the pros and cons, like it's great that there's groups and there's more privacy perhaps on Facebook, but also there's issues. And and then with Twitter, there's big issues with privacy and like all these other and like algorithmically too, the elevation of certain types of content over others. And like, like you said, just like lumping certain speech into like literally hate speech. Like it, it's just, it's problematic to say the mm-hmm. least. Mm-hmm. Um, from kind of the perspective, like a more technical perspective, could you maybe give a little more just information broadly about, you know, how how these things, like how these bugs kind of happen? Like how how did this happen where all of a sudden, you know, um, harassment or hate speech um, could be lumped in with, with certain other types of speech or certain people who are using the platforms themselves? Well, a lot of it comes down to the training data that goes into the machine learning algorithms or the neural networks that are being used because whatever biases or whatever the focuses of those training data that that leave out certain voices quite literally in some cases but also certain people and their experiences um, then that gets fed into the machine learning algorithm that then that becomes part of the output so like a couple years ago when google photos labeled a google engineer and his friend as gorillas that speaks to the fact that there weren't a lot of black people in the data set. There weren't a lot of black people on that project to be able to say, whoa, I've used this on my photos and this is what happened. So before it got rolled out, there wasn't someone there to be able to speak up. And even if there was someone who was there, they may not have felt comfortable speaking up or maybe they did and they were ignored. So, you know, there's a number of different possibilities there that can, that can be the case. So on the one hand, it's the training data. On the other hand, it's who was in the room, who was not in the room. Uh, And then if you have a third hand for some reason, then it's the matter of how the previous biases of the people building the algorithm um, get fed into that input. And it's like garbage in, garbage out. Mm, Yes. It's never neutral. It really mm-hmm. isn't. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's been something I'm learning. Um, and just, <laughs> yeah, it's like you. I think there was for a while maybe this idea or like notion that you know the internet's this beautiful democratic mm-hmm. oasis and like mm-hmm. everything is just magical and wonderful and open and it's like running and frolicking through a field or something. Right. And in actuality, like you were saying, it's like it took a lot of you know training data. It took a lot of like different things. And there were a lot of people, perspectives, experiences just completely left out. And Mm -hmm. that reinforced and mirrored like the societal biases or what was going on in in the world at large. And so it's baked into like every aspect of the platform itself. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that users always are aware of that when they're entering those spaces. And so you know, this is really helpful in thinking about how that happens and mm-hmm. why it happens. Absolutely. I'm thinking about Dr. Sophia Noble's work on algorithms of oppression, where if you were a, a Black woman or a Latina woman or an Asian woman, and you were trying to search for something that had to do with your identity, you get served up porn. And uh, there's also another book 
uh, it's technically wrong by Sarah Watcher Betcher. I think I'm pronouncing that name incorrectly, but uh, technically wrong also gives examples of how technology goes wrong and how it doesn't consider people. There was a, a woman who was trying to get venture capitalists to invest in her product, which was a breast pump. But when they would Google the product, they'd get served porn. And so they didn't want to touch it. They'd make inappropriate jokes. And like, it was just side railing those venture capitalist meetings. Um, and there, there are other examples. If you do a search for professional hairstyles, you'll get white women and white hairstyles. But if you search unprofessional hairstyles, you get a bunch of black women in their hairstyles. Um, and so, I mean, I could go on, but I think that as people are starting to see the seams, if you will, and start to experience these negative aspects of these spaces, more we are demanding better. And, we, and, and when these companies get confronted with these things, it's like, we're bug hunters, but we're not getting paid for our labor, for one. And then for two, they are calling them bugs. They're like, oh, there, this, this was fixed. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. We're able to fix it um, as though it weren't something that is linked to a more systemic, uh, more sinister issue. Yeah. Yeah, everything you just said, I'm just like, wow, yes. I, I've i been blown away just by my own, like trying to learn. Like I read, you know, Dr. Noble's book as well. And it's just, mm -hmm. it it blows my mind sometimes because, you know, you assume like, oh, I'm going to Google and I can just be given all the information that's in the world. You know, like it's just all right there at the touch of the finger. You know, I just hit the button mm -hmm. and boom, you know, there it is. But it's very much not that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I, yeah, it's, it is troubling, you know, to hear it talked about as like, oh, it was a bug or a kink in the system or whatever right. it might have been, right? Rather than acknowledging like, ooh, we had a deeper thing going on here. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it also um, is making me kind of go back to, I know I, I kind of alluded earlier to like uh, talking about policy or like the future changes that might happen um, more largely, it could be at a national level, it could be just the companies governing themselves. But mm -hmm. I was wondering, like, do you have any, you know, predictions about like, what changes do you think may occur from like a policy perspective, or, you know, this could be about privacy, it could be about a number of things, but mm -hmm. just any like, changes you foresee potentially happening in the next decade? Well, I would hope that something maybe not exactly similar, but something like what happened with the regulation of uh, the telecom companies or the cable companies or the electricity companies, right? All these big infrastructural entities became regulated by the government, you know, the air, the airline industry. Um, and so right now, I know there's a commercial from Facebook that's, that's kind of funny. Uh, where it has this black woman talking about how the laws haven't kept up with technology and we want to work with them to find out what those laws need to be or we need legislation. Like they're, they're trying to get ahead of this whole thing, really, and be like, well, we were on your side the whole time. We're willing to work with you. But then when you see the actual, um, what is it, when Mark Zuckerberg got called to Congress and he's you know sitting there and just reciting these talking points uh, to the questions that he's being asked, but it doesn't help 
that our current uh, politicians, not many of them anyway, have a good grasp of what these companies do, how they work, and the kinds of questions they need to be asking. Um, it's it's just really unfortunate. Like I forget who the person was who asked about regulating the Finsta accounts and how they need to be, and it was just like, oh, bless your heart. It's so true. I was listening to that as well, and just some of the questions. I was like, oh man, like did nobody brief you just five more minutes of time? Maybe we could have spent. Yeah, because it's right. just, I was like, oh, I was like, just let me in. I've got questions, like, right. questions from the audience. I don't know. Something, something. They could have had someone at a computer terminal fielding questions from, you know, Facebook Live. They could have had a perfect opportunity to do something like that. And I feel like in 10 years, I don't know how much the government will advance in this arena, but I would, I have some hope. I mean, I see AOC and and other politicians like her who are bringing the hard, tough questions and who are uh, savvy in these kinds of conversations. So um, here's hoping, you know, that in the next 10 years, that tide continues to swing in that direction. Um, I know in Coded Bias with Joy Bulamwini, it, they feature when she goes to Congress and gets to have a conversation with politicians and AOCs in the room and, and they're talking about facial recognition software and and it was just a really encouraging moment to see. Uh, so I can only hope that in the future, policy does take on a more informed approach as opposed to sort of grandstanding about how conservatives are being shut out of these organizations when the information and the data shows that conservatives are being handled with kid gloves on a lot of these platforms. Uh, and it's it's really unfortunate, the the sort of state of things in that regard. But yeah, that's my hope is that it does shift and change uh, over the next 10 years to really be more informative, to be more based and rooted in facts and truth as opposed to the post-truth that we're living in now. Um, so yeah, that's that's my hope, <laughs> my vision. I think that's beautiful and I really hope for it as well. Like I, I think that would be great if that could be the direction we're headed into and that we actually start to to see things happening um, in that regard. And there's one more question too that I was I was curious about. You know, I knew with your bio it says like you are a tech chaplain and you love helping people. And I was kind of wondering if you could just describe, you know, what that means. Like what what do you get to do in this in this role? And you know, what does it bring you joy? And like what about it perhaps brings you a lot of joy? Oh yes, I'd be happy to share about that. So when I was in seminary, I came up with the concept of tech chaplaincy. I had been helping people set up their new email address or set up their new laptop uh, when I was a first in my first semester. And I went to the IT department to ask if they could do drop-in hours since so many people were coming to me. And the IT departments did the best thing they could have done, which was say no. But they were like, well, why don't we go ahead and pay you to keep doing what you're doing? And so I started working for the IT department and having drop-in hours and having a conversation with one of the adjunct professors at, at seminary. I was talking about how my approach with people was very human centered, like people didn't feel like they were stupid or silly or doing something wrong. And I was explaining what was going on to people as I went and really helping them empower them to do what needed to be done to fix whatever issue they were having. And so that adjunct professor said, well, it sounds like you're 
being a chaplain to these people. Like you're meeting them in a moment of crisis and helping usher them through that moment with dignity and grace. And, and that I really took to that. I really appreciated that language and the sentiment behind it. So that's where tech chaplaincy came from. And what it means today with the Tech Chaplaincy Institute is that we teach and train mission-driven organizations on how to use their technology and build healthy relationships with it. Because we know that there's a lot of people who have fear and anxiety around technology, and we do want to replace that with empowerment. So whether that's helping you fix your current website, get a new website, get a website to begin with, uh, helping you with social media or any other specific technology, software, uh, that you're using, we want to be there to 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 help journey alongside you and getting to where you want to be with your technology. So those are the things that I find joy in is, is helping people, helping people um, overcome their fears and embrace the knowledge that they have and the the skill set they have to to do what they want to do with their technology. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Thank you. And I, I know too that you had mentioned there were some things that you remembered about was it, about that you'd safety. like to return back to. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Let's return there. What are some things that you were kind of thinking about? Yes. So when we were conducting interviews with people, one of the questions we asked was, is Twitter, a, is Black Twitter a safe space? And that was the one question where we had a mixture of answers that didn't really coalesce into one sit one specific yes or no. There were some people who thought Black Twitter was a safe space because you could go there as you were and find other people who were doing the same and be able to connect with folks around your identity as a Black person. There were other people who said, well, Black Twitter is still on Twitter, it's still on the internet, and it's a public forum, so all kinds of people can look into your conversation, say stuff about your conversation and this kind of thing. So in that regard, it's not a safe space. And this is where people talked about the bots that they come across that are trying to pretend like they're Black people or the racist comments and the the harassment that happens from other people who are looking in on the conversations on Black Twitter. So with safety, when, when we wrote the paper for CSCW, we had safety both as a benefit in Black Twitter as well as a challenge to Black Twitter for that reason. I think that gosh that's that's so true like on so many levels um it it would like i think the in its ideal way like in its ideal moment or form everyone should be safe you know mm-hmm. everyone should feel safe and have that space mm-hmm. and then in actuality mm-hmm. as we kind of mentioned too like even when you're talking about those social movements and stuff it was very much like no, this could be really dangerous for you to talk about, to engage with. Or like you were saying, you're you're met with harassment, hate speech, comments from other people looking in. And it's just like, you know, it's not the safe space, you know, it, it could be. Um, mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, also still sometimes being a safe space. And so it's like, there's a constant, I'm noticing there's like a constant kind of both and, you know, mm-hmm. or like and or depending on the situation, especially on social media platforms at large. It's just like it's always like it's one thing or the other thing or sometimes it's both things, but it's just mm-hmm. kind of like always teetering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I I love that you all identified that and that you brought that up as well because it's so true. So mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you for all the work that you're doing. I think it's really inspiring and I don't know. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for your time as well today. (laughs) I appreciate you. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Shamika Klassen. If you would like to find out more about Shamika's work, you can find her website at shamikalashan.com. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month, and we wish you all very happy holidays.